the network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation. AV Week is produced and distributed through a partnership with AV Nation and Rave Publications. For more information, go to ravepubs.com forward slash AV Nation. This is AV Week, episode 21 for December 23rd, 2011. Best of. Ready. AV, AV Week. Performing scan. Week. Online. This is AV Week. Welcome to this edition of AV Week. This has been a really, really great start to, to AV Nation with the launch of AV Week. Uh, I'm continue to be to be humbled and, and surprised at the number of people who, who listen to this and, and who are impacted by it and who who actually learn something or, or at least are entertained by it. We started with a very simple concept: uh, audio visual news and information for the AV industry. Presented in, hopefully, an entertaining way. I think that we've done that. I hope at least that, that we've done that. And now that we've partnered with Rave Publications and Gary Kay and, and Sarah and the gang over there, watch out for next year. I mean, seriously, there's, there really is, is no limit to what we can do and what we can provide you, uh, the audience. So, you know, thank you. And thank you, and, and thank to everybody. Thanks to, to Gary and Rave, and and all the guests, and all the the panelists, Julie Jacobson and, and Sam Malik, and and everybody who is, has agreed to come on and 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 help us, you know, and, and you know, lend their voice to an industry that that all of us here absolutely love and absolutely uh, are passionate about. Um, one of the clips you're going to hear is is Don Mead uh, and her preach it uh, blog that she wrote, and we we talked about some. That passion is is actually what I love about this industry, because people in it are that passionate for the most part. So uh, right now, let's take a look back at the last six months, the first six months of, of AV Nation and AV Week. Our very first episode uh, featured AV writer uh, Linda Sid Frembies, George Tucker, and Michael Drainer. We kind of uh, started out the show and started out this whole thing, uh, wrapping up Infocom. 2011. This is AV Week, episode 0000, Friday, July 29th, 2011. Uh, Linda, we'll start with you. What was something that just wowed you at Infocom this year? Well, I should actually, I'll put a caveat on my uh, selection, only because if, if anyone was actually at the show, you'll know that it would take more than those three days to see everything at the show. So I don't want anyone to feel slighted. Uh, but my favorite thing was the InFocus Mondo pad. That I thought, uh, it sort of combines all the things I think our industry has been going towards with interactivity, collaboration, conferencing. Um, and it was just really an impressive piece of technology. Now, for somebody who didn't see it, because I actually missed that one, what what is the InFocus Mondo pad? Well, um, you, you can probably go to the InFocus site, and that'll explain it better than <laughs> I can. But, uh, but 
just think of, of a 55 inch LCD full 1080p tablet Ooh, that wow. can be used for conferencing. So, I mean, again, it's just one of those, to me, it just sort of tied together all the things that from my perspective, from someone who writes about this industry, it's all the things that we've been talking about, right? So we've been talking about uh, unified communication, collaboration, interactivity, um, touch panels. I mean, it's, it's all of these things combined into a 55-inch LCD. That is sexy. A 55-inch touch panel. I like that. Um, George, what is your, your one or two things that, that kind of blew you away? I went more, a little more practical. Um, I was really impressed by the, uh, the AMX, um, the panoramic panels that they were putting out. Uh, I'm unsure if these are, are new or not, but I've never seen them before, and they really wowed me, the way they move and the way they feel. Um, when it's done as like a tabletop, it really reminded me of the old, uh, was, it the, uh, was it Bang & Olufsen B.O. Sound CD players? Oh wow! Yeah. Those? Mm-hmm. Very elegant looking, yet practical, yet something unique enough that you just want to touch. And I like just how it had that practicality from everything from conference rooms to a home use. It just really flowed very nicely with all the way that you could swipe stuff and just how it laid out. So this is the the, um, the edgeless touch panel. Yeah, yeah. They call what they call the Madero X's, I believe. They're mm-hmm. like nineteen something inches. Um, they're kind of ungainly looking, but I really do like them. I just, the minute I saw it, I wanted to touch it. It just, you know, and having been around touch panels for more than, more than I care to uh, admit, <laughs> it just really wowed me. And I was like, it wasn't an iPad moment, but it really was a, wow, I want, I, I'd love to be able to find a way to put that in somewhere. And you know, that's some, there's something to be said for that because companies like Extra and Crestron and AMX and, and Aurora, Sometimes they have uh, a, a difficulty, uh, a difficult time coming out with a, another wow touch panel because so so often is the time uh, for a few for a few for the past few years it's been eh it's a touch panel you know it, it does what it does it, it's it's almost like a, a utility truck you know uh, and right. to, to hear to see something like that you're right something that's sexy and something that it, it just kind of grabs your attention and makes you want to touch it for right. the end user is huge. Yeah. I mean, that's what iPad did, really, too. I mean, it was like, hey, it's wireless, it's thin. Wow, that looks so cool. Um, and I think this has a similar effect for those installs where a dedicated proprietary panel is really necessary. And there are those cases, you know, where you don't want something that you're not sure if it'll last the, the use and abuse that a, uh, a public causeway would have or something. Yeah. Um, the other one that I really liked, which is um, not quite on the install side, since I'm on the staging and live events side nowadays, uh, is a company called Dataton. Uh, Dataton is a Swedish company that started off doing show control, which was uh, back in the old slide days when you did multimedia, when that meant you know sound in slides. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they have actually morphed into a masking soft image, image mapping company with a product called Watchout. And it uses, uh, in the old days, it used multiple computers to do each segment of the screen. So if you're familiar with this process, in the old days, you used to use the shutters on your projectors with certain material feeding it to make the edge blends. You can only do it on a flat screen. Well, nowadays, you can do it on curved screens and all these shaped screens and multiple locations. Uh, and what Dataton has done is stepped it up, and they now allow um, one computer to do multiple screens, and they allow a stereoscopic, almost 3D imagery. It requires glasses, but it actually looks pretty cool. Oh, and wow. the really cool part is they do now something called enhanced live interaction. Right, it's a marketing name. But yeah. <laughs> what, how they showed it was they took an iPad 
controlling this watch out computer, but then took an iPad, took a picture of the crowd, and it showed up on screen within about 40, uh, 15 seconds. Wow. And it was a little, and the 15 seconds was because it was so dense at Infocom with RF. Uh, if you have any of those little RF readers, which I, I carry around, it was just dense, packed. So they say typically it would take, you know, a couple of seconds, and they used it like a Polaroid. Polaroid would come out of this camera, take time to develop, and there was your image. That is, oh, but it's a really nifty. They, they actually use this technology on the um, on the uh, U two three sixty tour. Yes, that's right. They do where yes. they're taking pictures of the audience while while it's happening, and then throwing up on the screens. Yeah, yeah, and this is one of those things that does that, and it does it live interaction for like uh, audience reaction and polls. Oh wow! So you can have audience members, you know, whatever, hitting a button or an audience feedback thing, and it'll show instantly up on the screen with like meters or some kind of graphic representation of those numbers so instant feedback from the from the audience yeah. themselves wow there's yeah. a lot of there's really a lot of use product. for that yeah and there's a few companies out there that do similar things like pandora and hypnotizer and all those guys but this really sort of steps it up with the interactivity hmm. all right mr integrator michael what was your one or two things you know coming from the integration side of things um you know we do a lot in the video conferencing world and i was thoroughly impressed with polycom's new eagle eye director system had the dual high-definition cameras with the ribbon microphone, full facial recognition. And what I found amazing by this is it really increases the simplicity of deploying multi-camera video conferencing in a collaborative environment. So did anybody, any of you guys get a chance to see that, the Polycom stuff? No. No? No, I didn't get a chance. So, so imagine a technical director inside the codec. And that's really what it is. So uh, camera number one will pick the person that's talking. And, you know, in traditional video conferencing environments, um, when the next person starts talking, the camera would shift. It would make you dizzy, all that kind of stuff. Um, But now the second camera will pick the next talker. Then it will do a cut to the, the person that's speaking at that moment in time. So it really creates a continuous collaborative type um, flow in the video presentation. Now, is that done with, with microphone recognition, or how is that? What's interesting about it is the microphone, you know, in traditional deployments, you'd have a microphone in front of each speaker mm-hmm. at the conference table. And so you'd have a digital signal processor or something that would determine who's talking, and you'd have a preset that tells the camera where to go. But with this technology, the microphone is at the camera's location, and it picks up the direction of that voice and then the software in the codec recognizes who's talking with its facial recognition software, locks onto that individual, and then makes the cut. Hmm. Interesting. All right, uh, I guess it's my turn. My, my number one, and this is only because of sending HD down a single pipe, down a single piece of, of, of Cat5 or, or Twisted Pair, really, not Cat5, uh, and that is, is Crestron's DMMPS. Um, it's not because it's that box. It's just because that's like one of the first boxes that has everything in, built into it from a control system and from a, uh, an HD distribution system. Um, everybody knows the issues that, that the industry has with HDCP and with sending high-definition content over longer distances. I mean, anything over 100 feet or so, then, then you're going to start getting into some issues. And the MPS is just their digital media MPS, which if you're not familiar with their MPS series, it is a video mixer, it's an audio mixer, it's a control processor, all kind of mixed into one box. And then you've got, um, you throw the DM stuff on top of that, which DM is, is Crestron's version of HD over, over a single uh, piece of 
of Twisted Pear. Extron has it. AMX has it. A bunch of people have it. This just happens to be theirs. And I think it's cool because it's it's one that yeah that's actually coming out in the next six months. Uh, nothing against anybody else, but but and this is something Linda and I have talked about before. I'm a big fan of if you're if you're going to show something at a trade show, you kind of want, might want to have it out at least shipping in the in the next at least by the time the next trade show comes out. <laughs> uh, that's just me. Um, that's just me. Yes, always I- helpful. I hear you feel very strongly about that. <laughs> I do, I do, I do. And you know what? It's it's me as an end user. I mean, that that really is. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I design and yeah, I program. But but when when it comes down to it, I, I'm kind of an end user. And so when I see something, I mean, I'm I'm a guy and I like electronics. If I see something and it works, I want it and I want it now. I don't want it in a year or two years, or, or I don't want, I don't want you to show me this exact same box next year at Infocom in Vegas. Well, and you're not alone in that in that world as the end user because from the integration standpoint, it becomes an absolute nightmare. And I have multiple conversations with my manufacturers and my rep firms about just this convers- about this topic particular. Don't tell me you've got this latest and greatest technology, and then not deliver it for six months, eight months, ten months. You better deliver on what you say you're going to deliver because I've have to design my systems around that. How many times, Tim, do we get together on a project and? We have uh, we, we build this design based on a technology that's supposed to be released and it's supposed <laughs> to be shipping, and then we end up having to revamp the entire design mm-hmm. by the time deployment comes around. It's yeah. an absolute nightmare. It is, and it's unfortunate for the end users who go, you know, this is this is something really cool, and especially um, I, I understand designing twelve months out, um, but you we're, we're we're working in an industry now that, especially with digital and, and how fast things move that 12 months is a lifetime. I mean, how, mm-hmm. how much stuff, guys, in the last 12 months has changed when it comes to digital and HDCP and, and, and everything? Yeah. So if you're, if you're a designer, you know, or even an integrator who's a, who, does, who does a design build, um, designing 12 months out almost is, is suicide. I think, but it's I think just, too, it's not, it's more of a for me. It's I, I see it more of as a marketing thing because if you announce something that the market doesn't have, you are technically first to market. So it really, it's not that it doesn't matter, but in, in that very moment, it doesn't matter. The end users, they're not thinking of the end users because, for me, it's you know, in from my perspective, it's a marketing thing. But are you first to market? And I understand the marketing part, but are you first to market then if you're not shipping it? Oh, those are just tiny little details. (laughs) (laughs) Shush, shush. Jeez, I give up. All right. So I have a I have a question for the group actually. That's based on some of the description you had about the HTCP stuff. Yes. I know there's a lot of boxes out there now saying you don't need that. You don't need the HTCP. And from what I've been reading, and granted it's on the internet, so we'll take it for what it's worth. It's all true. There, exactly. <laughs> um, there are a number of products out there saying, you don't need to worry about that. We just bypass it. And, you know, if you read the HDMI.org, you know, licensing rules, they say you must have this and you must be aware of it and recognize it and acknowledge it. But there's a lot of products out there, even major manufacturers, who aren't. And I really get the feeling that HDMI is sort of going, you know, a little wrist slap. Going, don't, don't do that. Okay, we'll talk to you later. <laughs> and then and they're coming out with it. So there's these companies that invested all this money in making it right, following the rules, and they're sort of getting run around. 
No, they are. And I don't know if this is a real issue or if everyone just sort of says, okay, we'll take both and we know where to put them, but there is an investment issue here based on the licensing agreement and its ability to be enforced. Well, it, this is actually something that I've, I've spent a lot of time on um, because I have a very good friend who works for a company who has spent a lot of time doing it right. And he and I have gone back and forth because when he first told me about this, I said I didn't believe him. Uh, and I didn't for a long time. I disagreed with him. I didn't think that the industry would, would stand for it. I didn't think the end user would stand for it. And so I actually sat down and I read not only the HDMI spec, but the HDCP spec and the AACSLA spec. And that was interesting reading. If you, if you have trouble going to sleep at night, I suggest you curl <laughs> up with it. But the bottom line is this. Yes, you need to worry about it. Um, there are some rumblings and there are some wink, wink, nudge, nudges that they're going to come out with an HDCP Pro or an H, uh, specification, which gives manufacturers the ability to pay a fee and then manage, actively manage the keys themselves. So let's say you have a Blu-ray player and it has a key. It goes to box A and box A is a switcher. So box A is HDCP HDCP Pro, it is actively managing, so it's the one talking back to the to the Blu-ray player every two seconds, saying yes, I'm I'm approved, I'm good, and then Box A talks to the to the display, and whether it's one display or fifteen displays, that's between that that's the manu- that's Box A manufacturer's problem, and then it's his it's his responsibility to then talk to the displays and make sure that they are HDCP compatible. So, yes, you need to worry about it, at least as far as, as the HDCP guys and the AACSLA guys are concerned. You still need to worry about it. Then, so. then, then how are they allowing these, these key manufacturers? And, and you and I have seen a number of products like this that just, like George is saying, they just totally strip it, bypass it, convert it to analog, whatever the case may be. We've all seen those products. If they're not going to enforce it, what's going to come of HDCP? And I think that, uh, that, you know what, there's a key statement you just made, though. It's key manufacturers. This is not just one-offs or a, a hack box that somebody broke the DVD code. It's These are some big players doing this. Exactly. Yeah, and, that, and I guess that's – that's my thing is this, is, is there was a post on some forum somewhere, and, and I, I apologize because um, I don't have the attribution, but it was a gorgeous analogy. The guy said he was an AV industry um, uh, Member And he said, when my dad was in uh, during the 80s, he had to go back to school to learn how to um, build or deal with um, fuel injection. He had built carburetors and worked on cars his entire life. But then they came out with something called fuel injection, and, and building carburetors really wasn't part of the deal anymore. He had to learn something new. And I think that's a good, good analogy for do, going to digital and dealing with this content projection. The, the guys that are behind the content protection have a vested interest. I mean, these are the same yahoos that are, that are going out there that are, that are going to different um, countries and, and trying to get massive fines laid on people who are, who are committing piracy. So they are really, really bent on protecting their content. And I get that. These guys should be paid. I'm not, I'm not saying that, that piracy is a great thing. So, what, what, so they're going to go after this in one way, shape, or form. And if we find ways around it, guess what? They're going to hire really smart people to find better ways to lock this down. And then we're going to be stuck 
with a single source and a single display system, which every AV um, industry person is cringing at that thought. Because, I mean, think about some of the greatest displays and some of the greatest AV um, uh, installs you've ever seen. They are not ones and ones. They are these giant manufactured multi-screen display systems. But who drives that market? You know, that market's not driven by the AV industry. The, Which the, market? The, the content protection. Hmm? The people that, that are driving this initiative, it's the consumer industry that they're locking down. They're not concerned about the AV manufacturers and the AV professionals in the industry. They're concerned about the consumers that are copying content, that are doing it illegally, that are stealing intellectual property. So, you know, that, that particular segment of the electronics industry is much larger than what we're dealing with in the professional AV world. It, so our voice is not as loud. No, it, it, and, but, and it makes it, it difficult. But it affects us directly. It does. I mean, they 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 are concerned, and, and, and again, rightfully so, uh, with people copying their mm-hmm. their their material. And so, yes, the consumer electronics industry is, is who they're focused on. Well, primarily, what is a consumer electronic div, uh, system? It is one Blu-ray player mm-hmm. and one TV. Mm-hmm. So that's all they care about. Does that make does that make sense, George? Yeah, yeah. You know, I just I think it's an issue to be brought up because it's still out there. You know. Well, and that's one that we could hash over for hours on end. You know, just right, different right. trains of thought on that one. I mean, you go take that all the way back to the VHS Betamax wars. <laughs> well, and another question is is how do they? How does see technically the AACSLA are the are the governing body of the whole the whole shebang? How do they police this? Mm-hmm. And I guess that's really where it that's the where, where the question kind of devolves into. How are they right. going to police this? According to their, their guidelines, they're going to blacklist you. you know. And there's a number of, of, of manufacturers. Um, there was one that, that released one based on the uh, HDMI 1.4 this, this year that allowed that was actively managing keys. Well, this is a, a group that had been a part of this whole group since 2004. So I don't, I don't believe that they're doing anything illegal. Um, and so I guess some of it is, is doing some research and seeing where these guys are coming from. Um, if right now 1.4 is not released to the public, the, the specification. So if in that specification it says, hey, you know, you guys can actively manage, well, then, yeah, they're, then they're, their boxes are perfectly, quote, unquote, legal or within the, the guidelines of the specification. I just don't see somebody who's been involved with this whole thing for, you know, the last seven or eight years kind of chucking it and saying, you know what, forget you guys, we're going we're gonna to circumvent you. Yeah, sure. I, I mean, to make a metaphor out of it, it's sort of like the copyright on, on product names. So, you know, we say, you know, you're going to Xerox something or you're going to mm-hmm. do something that's, I'm going to Google it. It could come down to the point where people just say, well, the ubiquity on the market is these boxes that don't, don't even pay attention to it <laughs> yeah. or subvert it are mm-hmm. the mass market. And therefore, you've now overwhelmed it and it has become and you know standard what? because... You're right. That may be what it comes down to. And if it does come down to that... Um, <laughs> I feel sorry. But it's a question of enforcement, you know. Yeah, I feel sorry that. for the companies that have spent millions of dollars doing it the right way. <laughs> well, precisely my statement, yeah. and question really at hand is where do, where's the enforcement coming from, and how do we know that it's okay? I mean, just the HDMI sticker on the front doesn't mean that they followed the rules. No, no, it, it should doesn't. mean it. <laughs> it should, and again, the only the only enforcement is is the blacklist. It really is. Right. Um, so. Right. Another early episode uh, introduced us all to Matt Scott and Johnny Moda. Here we discussed the Crestron analog trade-in system and their, their new policy, uh, whereby you can trade in old analog gear and get some, some digital stuff. And we kind of channeled Monty Python for a minute. 
finally, guys, this came across my desk this morning, and I, I don't know if I'm supposed to, to read this, but, you know, it came across my desk, so what the heck. Uh, the Crestron. Transition from analog to digital. Get up to 100% trade-in credit. That's right. I said 100%. Trade in credit for all of you wonderful end users. Bring out your PVID, QM, and IM system into the digital age with the Crestron Digital Media. It's quick, easy, and highly profitable. So basically what Crestron is saying is this. Bring us your poor, your tired, your huddled mess of analog systems, and we'll give you brand spanking new digital. Johnny? Are you going to call all your, your residential guys and say, hey, you know, throw down, get rid of your, your VCR, and I'll bring you a Blu-ray player and a brand new digital media box? Definitely, definitely. I saw, that, I got that email this morning, just like usually, I'm sure, and uh, it's definitely one of those bring out your dead moments. You, it, I was talking <laughs> to one of my clients the other day about how he has this huge uh, distributed audio video system, PVIDs and such, that's completely crushed on, and how, you know, very soon... That's just going to be a big paperweight. And he looked at me with, like, the biggest stare of, like, you're kidding. You know, I just bought this, you know, X amount of years ago. And I looked at him like, well, technology changes, you know, every so often. And it's, it's not something I did to, to fool you or whatever. It's just something that's happening. I'm making you aware that in about, say, a year or two, this is going to be obsolete. And you're going to have no video content anywhere. And now that I see that, I have a chance to, to say, you know, hey... Uh, remember the other day I was talking about this, and and you were like, I don't want to pay for all this stuff. If he has a chance to to take out that entire system and have up to 100% just like swapping out, and all I have to do is charge him the labor, I could see him, I mean, you would just be ridiculous, uh, silly not to, to hop on that train. I mean, a little bit of labor, yeah, I get it, but seriously, if you can just trade a box for a box and a little bit of labor time, why wouldn't you want, not want to do that versus just having a bunch of equipment in a closet or wherever it may be that does nothing and you spent a buttload on it i would be upset myself well absolutely absolutely or the other option is to just you know throw it in a closet or throw it away and buy all brand new matt is this something that not only house of worship but your other installations that you could bring to your customers because you know i I get the church market believe me i do um you know i i I help our our church out and and it's part of the conversation is that there's cost and money and resources but this is something you could take to them and say okay you know what i get i get budgets but here's something that you can do to upgrade your system from the old stuff that you have now and bring you more into a more modern age yeah it's definitely something that we're going to try and essentially leverage as much as possible not only to you know help us as a company but also help our customers because especially as i'm sure you know working with churches, a lot of times they're not going to drop, you know, that entire system cost at once. They'll try and essentially almost do a piecemeal and, you know, do a little bit here, a little bit here, a little bit here. So with this type of offer, it's something where hopefully we can go to a lot of our customers and clients like that and say, hey, you know, we can help you upgrade this system right now, get you into essentially, you know, the 21st century, uh, you know, with the latest and greatest stuff. And it will really, you know, cost you pennies on the dollar when we're just talking labor rates. So it, it's something that, you know, especially in the house of worship market, I think can be uh, used very, very effectively. And you know, major, you know, props to Crestron for doing something like this because it is extremely frustrating 
uh, for both us as integrators and you know our consumers when you buy something and within two years it's completely outdated. So it, you know any time that we can help them upgrade and you know just better their systems with minimal output for them is obviously better for everybody. Michael, you do a fair amount of installations in the education market. And just like with the House of Worship, there are budgets, there are issues, and I get that. But is this something that, let's say that three or four years ago, you did a brand new installation? Technically, that system should still be viable. That system should be still robust and working. Is this something that you can take back to your college or university or K-12 through installation and say, hey, look, you know, I know we just did this. But, you know, here's some digital stuff. It, it'll work. I swear there's not going to be any changes. Three or four years ago. Try three or four months ago. Okay. You know, I, I mean, we, we still have a number of, cl- of uh, clients that, you know, you, you educate them about digital and the importance of it. But they say, we don't have the budget. Give me VGA. That's all I need right now. Let's move forward. So we do it. You know, it's what the client wants. Um, you know, you educate them and you try to try to progress them with the technology. So now this kind of changes the game because we can go back to those systems that we just deployed and say, hey, by the way, <laughs> we can trade this stuff up now. <laughs> yeah. It's not going to look real good, but, you know, it, it's bringing some value to the customer. I'll be interested to see, though, how the other manufacturers follow suit, if they're going to follow suit. I think this is a brilliant, brilliant marketing ploy by Crestron to, uh, to get their product into many different um, client spaces and I think that the competitive manufacturers are going to be amiss if they don't follow suit with some sort of program that's similar to this. Okay, here's a stupid question. Who can follow suit? Because who's doing DM or something like DM? Well, DM is not necessarily, they're not going to be capable of doing digital media, but there's no reason they can't offer upgrade programs from analog to digital systems. I mean, the E's and the A's and the, and the other A's that are out there. Uh, definitely have the ability to say, hey, bring us your old uh, VGA matrix and we're going to give you an SDI matrix or we'll give you an HDMI matrix, whatever the case may be. So so there are other ways to bring upgradable solutions on a trade-in program like this. This next clip is, is where we talk to A.V. Dawn, Dawn Mead, who is a great industry resource. She's heavily involved in Infocom, the organization. She wrote a blog post that encouraged us as well as um, you know the entire industry to preach it, you know, preach it, go out there and proselytize the AV industry. Well, we discuss that along with uh, her and I discuss it with, with Kevin Iselli from Crestron and our buddy George Tucker. Don, you wrote a very cool, very uh, interesting blog post on Ray of Blogs. Um, why don't you go through it and tell us it's, it's entitled Preach It, Brothers and Sisters Preach It. Um, what I gathered, and you can obviously correct me if I'm wrong, basically we still have an identity problem in the inf- in the in the AV industry. And as much as you know, your mom still thinks you're a, you're a, you sell TVs. And, and Richard Fergoza <laughs> a couple of weeks ago says that he's a VCR repairman. Right. So, <laughs> so go ahead and, and kind of explain to us uh, what what you were thinking and, and the thrust of this of this post. Well, you know, the basic thought is. In 2009, Infocom celebrated its 70th anniversary, seven decades of an association for the AV industry. The AV industry itself has been around since, well, well you know, when did they invent the, the record player? When did they invent, you know, the, the very first recording media? That's really the birth of our industry. 
But when you tell people you work in the AV industry, you usually kind of get that glazed over eye look of, you know, just total blank and they have no idea what you're talking about. Um, we don't have a degree program for an AV design engineer, or AV installer or anything in the United States. Um, it was until master format 2004 before we even got a place of our own for AV specs and construction documents. So there's really just a real, real lack of information about our industry, despite the fact that we're everywhere. I mean, imagine waking up tomorrow with no AV, no mics, no speakers, no monitors on your computer, because that's a version of a, you know, TV screen or a monitor, you know, that's all AV. And we're everywhere. People take it for granted, but they don't realize or recognize that we're a distinct industry. So, you know, the gist of my post is, hey, people, it's obviously not gaining precedence in the people in American people's mind just by being, you know, they take us for granted. So you have to go out there and basically preach about what it is we do. You can't sell a system to a customer before you sell the industry. So no, I'm true. encouraging, yeah, I'm encouraging everyone in AV, you know, if you have a chamber of commerce or a technology council, community organization for networking, offer to speak to them and talk about AV, you know, join Infocom, join NSCA, or even just go to their sites. They have a lot of free info on how to evangelize our industry, you know, um, get on LinkedIn or, a or Twitter and become an AV tweep. We'd love to have you. You know, the more of us that are out there making noise, the sooner people will understand what it is we do. And, um, you know, I'm in my third year of a dual master's program at the University of Maryland right Oy. now. Um, yeah, <laughs> I finished the technology management part of the degree and I'm on the MBA part, but I'm working with a bunch of IT people because there's no applicable AV degree. IT is as close as I could get with technology management. So, you know, and even in my classes with my professors, I'm constantly telling them what it is we do. So, you know, the, the best place to find a helping hand is at the end of your own arm is the Swedish proverb that I sort of close the article with. And, you know, nobody's out there helping us let our industry be known. We have to help ourselves and just talk about it. Just kind of be obnoxious, have fun, make friends, and let them know what AV is. Well, let me ask, because when, when I read this, the first thing that, that I thought was, yes, we're everywhere. We're ubiquitous. And I think that's part of our problem. The fact that we have been around for, for so many years, like you said, that the invention of, of, of the radio, of the record player and, and the radio and any, any time there's signals, you know, there's, you know, audio and video going over going over the lines. We have right. been around forever. So we're everywhere. And yet that's part of the problem. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, I call us the largest industry in the world that's a hidden industry because people don't know we exist, but we're worth billions of dollars worldwide, you know? Yeah, it's kind of like um, in the music industry when I was a part of that. We were the greatest band you never heard of. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I think and the, the, bigger the bigger challenge is, you're right, Don, there, there is no... There's no professional degree system out there that's going to give you an AV industry degree. The closest thing we've ever had is broadcast media, uh, but that's that's just one facet. I mean, uh, I'll throw out a number there that George probably will give him a little bit of a creeps. I lived my life in sixteen seven ninety for twenty years, <laughs> right? You, so it, it's you're you're right. We've now made some some advances in the industry. Uh, with having our own master spec qualification, uh, we still don't have, let's say, a 
uh, notified degree program out there that you know tells people what our specialty is and of course because we don't have that or that we don't have that kind of backing when you're dealing with other disciplines let's say you know we're always mm-hmm. the first ones to get cut out of the project too right right well let, let me ask you something because i've talked with a couple different integrators before and, and these are guys that do the hiring and the firing i'm a big proponent of education i'm not doing a double masters like like don is i'm doing a single one <laughs> a little more sane um but i i've i've pitched that idea to them because i've talked with infocom about doing stuff like that and i i, I you know work with with colleges and stuff and I have pitched the idea to different info to different integrators. The comment that they said to me was, "We think you should do it. it it's a great idea because what in in their mind what I'm what would happen is you would flood the market with all this talent, which would drive down um, salaries. And so that, at least from their perspective, is a double edged sword. Yes, it would it would give us a degree, and yes, it would give us some some cachet that like the IT industry has but are they right would it drive that would it with the flood of of qualified degreed engine you know engineers and designers put a damper in and kind of drive down uh salaries and and the income that not only the new guys are making but also what what the other current uh integrators are making um i don't know you if know- providing value to a discipline or a uh, pro- providing value to a skill should drive anything down. Um, you know, we could have lots of conversations, and George could definitely back me on the support side of things, which we just won't go into. You well, know, I. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead, Don. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I don't think it would. If if it did drive down salaries, I think that would be in the long, long term. Mm-hmm. Um, because right now, you know, people are commanding decent salaries in our field, the skilled and trained people. But at the same time, those integrators have to pay for their CTS classes and their CTSD classes. They have to not necessarily pay for them to do manufacturer training. But, you know, if I go to a week to Crestron School or a week to Extron School or any other school for that matter, buy amp on the West Coast, that's a week away from the office, a week of not being productive and airfares and things, you know, the manufacturers are great about providing sometimes accommodations, sometimes travel, depending on the manufacturer, but that's still costing our employers to give us the time to send us there for that Mm -hmm. training. So I think if there were a degree program that we could get independently, either undergrad or graduate, that would provide the skilled people in the marketplace without that extra expense to to the integrator, and they could be able to pay them the same salary and, and like, relax because they don't have the extra expense of training. Mm, that's a very good point. Go ahead, George. I would just like it so that there's a degree so that when I ask the question of potential text that they don't tell me an audio XLR is uh, left, right, and ground. <laughs> As yeah, Kevin that's... and I have discussed <laughs> ad nauseum in in basically oh, getting support people into the the phones uh, at at my former employer, it it was it was really bad. I've been in the audio, you know, ten years. I've been doing specifically audio. Pro, yes, pro. Okay, tell me how this works. Left, right, and ground. Right. No. You know, technically, you know, it could be left, right, ground. For pro audio. Well, no, pro audio. When you're but... when, when you're a lo- when you're a pro <laughs> audio guy. It's, I'm just the whole saying you could do it, isn't it? It's and possible. Honestly, 
you know, sure. one of the things okay. that we actually, because because Crestron does have, uh, you know, a, a programming curriculum, um, we get that all the time. You know, I, we don't have enough time to come to class. My, you know, my boss won't let, don't won't send me. Uh, what we've actually seen documented and let's say, well, I don't want to say document. What we have proven is that those days that you spend in the classroom save you time in the job site. Oh, yeah. You know, oh, you, oh instead without question. Of, well, even and more I so, actually, Kevin. Thought, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, well, even more so, Kevin. There was a time when there was a huge debate internally at, at Crestron as to whether to teach some of the basics. What tools to carry. What the basics of audio and RF are. And you found, we found that you had to teach that as one of the prerequisites to the class because they came out going, all right, you told me how to do that, but I don't understand what it's working with. Yeah, what's this left, right, and ground thing? Yeah, exactly. We, ha we had some stuff like that. And this is not a dig at the people in the field because sometimes they'd say, there you go, you're hired, get out there, do it. And there's something to be said for that as well, the apprentice method and just getting out there and getting, getting your hands dirty. But yeah, I mean, it would be great to have that at all levels. I mean, Don, I think you're you're talking even a higher level at times uh, about education. But I'd love to see that CTS or something similar as an educational uh, foundation is, is real. Right, and and Infocom is as an association is taking steps in that direction. Um, they now have their you know totally free, no cost to the company or the individual. The intro to AV class is completely free online. Um, they have a couple of other courses that are free and webinars that are free online for some of the basic stuff. And they also now have a pre-CTS certificate that you can get. I can't remember off the top of my head the exact name for it. But basically it's saying I've gone through this coursework. I can do basic AV stuff even though I'm not a CTS yet. And it's just sort of to get some of these off the street people to a basic level of competence before they go out and represent our industry. And it's needed, yeah. desperately. So, desperately. you know, good, good on Infocom <laughs> for moving forward with that stuff because, uh, you know, none of the universities are doing it. We have to get out there and let people know about us so that someday they will. And I keep pushing, you know, I'm on one of the Infocom committees. I keep pushing the board, talk to universities, get your face up in front of them, not just about the AV in their infrastructure, but about putting the AV in their curriculum, you know, so What's interesting, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> from an education standpoint, you know, colleges are, I'm, not, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, colleges are money-making institutions. I mean, regardless of whether it's a state university or it's a private college, they're not in the business to lose money. And so if they have a program, it's because they've done the research and they see a viable use for it. Part of what you're saying, Don, and I agree with you, is we need as maybe an industry or, or as, you know, integrators say, hey, you know, you have hired us to come in. Why don't you pursue doing some sort of, whether it's an associate's or a bachelor's or up, up to the graduate level, some sort of program to train people and educate them to where you create an AV degree? Right. So... Absolutely. I mean, it, it's something that it's going to come eventually, but as people in the industry, we have to go out and spread the word and get people, get the demand there. You know, I've, I've been in the industry for 15 years. Like most people, I totally fell into the industry by accident. I didn't grow up saying I want to be an AV when I grow up. I didn't even know that was a thing other than the guys with the slide projector at school, you know. Yeah. So... It's something we have to get out there and talk about. And some of our talking on Twitter and some of our blogging is starting to make headway. 
This year in Orlando, I actually met three people that were college students at the show just because they want a career in AV and wanted to see what there is. That's awesome. I was so excited. I was like jumping up and down excited when I met these kids. So we just need a whole bunch of people doing that, you know? What, what do you want to be when you grow up, Timmy? I want to be a doctor. I want to be a lawyer. I want to be an AV tech, you know, or an AV design engineer. That's where we want to go. So just preach it. Get out there and preach it. <laughs> I wanted to be a lumberjack. Welcome back. This clip is where we talk with Gary Kay, Adrian Boyd, and Craig McCormick from Commercial Integrator Magazine about how pro, air quotes here, how pro is Monster Cable? From uh, Jason Knott, Craig, your buddy Jason Knott wrote this. After 32 years, Monster Cable Products Incorporated has officially changed its name to Monster and shortly thereafter filed suit against the Cookie Monster and Monster.com. <laughs> yes. I hate Monster Cables. I'm sorry. Uh, Craig, is this is this a big deal or is this just, you know, some Yahoo, you know, high-end cable company changing their name? I, I would say it's probably, probably the latter, although I'm not sure I would describe it quite that way. Um, I, I I don't think it's a big deal at all. I, I, I think probably most people that, uh, who worked with them, most most of their customers probably called them Monster anyway and didn't realize their full name was Monster Cable Product anyway. Um, I, I, I don't really think it's going to change anything. That uh, It sounds like the purpose of it, it was to you know, kind of make people aware that they sell more than cable products and, uh, you know, um, you know, kind of expand their customer base, but I, I don't think it's going to change a whole heck of a lot, to be honest. Gary, this is my perception, and it could I could be wrong. I, I don't get the perception that Monster is a pro-AV cable guys. I mean, yeah, it, Jason wrote this in, in, in CE Pro, so, you know, it, it's more of a, of a resi kind of story. But... I, I don't know every every person I've ever talked to about Monster Cables, from the and I, I say the fact that they that they filed suit against Cooking Monster and Monster dot com tongue in cheek, but they have a history of just pissing people off by, you know, suing them because they're using the word monster, and then their cables are are in my opinion, outrageously expensive. So is is does anybody in the industry really use them, or am I you know am I just jaded? Well, you know what, one thing you got to give them credit for is that. They are a marketing company, not a manufacturer. They have, they have marketed themselves into a position where you assume uh, high quality with them, and you know I, I have to give them kudos. I mean, they they um, you know they are a good example of sort of marketing 101 on how to market your your brand because people will go in and instead of buying the eleven dollar literally instead of buying the eleven dollar six foot HDMI cable that is branded by um, Best Buy, um, or even the $30 gold version of the Best Buy cable, they'll, they'll buy the Monster one for $60 because it has the Monster brand next to it. So they've, they've, it's, it's better branding through marketing. And, um, and hey, if, if they can do it, you know, more power to them. I have nothing against. If you can charge oh, yeah. whatever you yeah. want to charge, you should be able to charge whatever you want to charge, regardless of the quality, because the best product isn't always the market-leading product, but... Um, it, sometimes it's you know the better market. I mean, Bose sells a hell of a lot of of uh, audio systems to people because they have a much better marketing um, position than most other manufacturers of the same type of stuff. Agreed. Agreed. So 
I mean, that's why I look at it as I see them as, you know, they, I, I gotta, I have to give them credit for being a marketing company. I mean, uh, they are not a manufacturer and they're not creative in their manufacturing. They're very good at marketing their products and branding them such that you assume there's quality related to them. Um, car manufacturers do it all the time. I yeah. mean, people pay more money for cars just because of their brand. So. Yeah, and there's there's a number of monstrous products that, you know, they don't make them. Then somebody else makes them and they just slap their name on it. You know, there's a lot. We have a lot of manufacturers that do that. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, they do our marketing. I mean, if you've ever sat down uh, with, with, the, with the owner of Monster and, and listened to one of his seminars, it, it is a, you know, it's, it's marketing, marketing, marketing. You know, and, and they're really good at what they do. After CDA this year, Sarah Abrams from Ray Publications, Rich Fragosa, Matt Scott, and Phil Cordell all sat down for a recap of CDA as well as to introduce us to the ESCI. So you have people coming from very, very different walks of life uh, into the, the ESC uh, uh, market these days. Hmm. The, what, the what now? We, uh, CDA has requested that we uh, no longer refer to ourselves as custom installers in a, in a way to uh, kind of branch out who we are and what we do. We now uh, do tend to refer to ourselves as ESCs, Electronic ESCs. Systems Contractors. So you're an ESC. I'm an ESC. I'm an ESCI. You're an ESC. In an ESCI. <laughs> an ESCI. Okay. Phil, are That's you an ESCI? Oh, go ahead. That's what NSCA has been calling its members. Is ESCs? ESCs, yeah. ESCs. Hmm. It sounds like an, it sounds like a basketball team from a, the Big Ten. <laughs> or some form of award. Or, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you for this ESCI. <laughs> I'd like to thank all the little people. Phil. You, you, go ahead. Yo, yo. How was your experience at CEDIA? It was great, man. Uh, you know, apart from the identity confusion, I think we're all trying to find ourselves now in this ESC world. <laughs> Matt, what was uh, what was one product or something that that you saw that kind of jumped out at you? The the biggest thing that I saw um, was definitely the Lutron shade. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's and I am a Lutronite. I'm a you know huge Lutron fan, so I'm probably slightly jaded. But to me, that was probably the biggest thing. the The concern I have with seeing um, like the 4K projectors, as cool as they are, uh, we still don't have any content for it. So I. I can't get overly excited about something that is going to be really, really hard for me to sell. It, it reminds me the same as when we first got Blu-ray players in Canada. There was like six different discs in the entire country that we could get. So it was like, all right, buy this really expensive, cool new thing, but you're not going to have anything to watch on it for quite a while. And, you know, I know a lot of that is just Canada and whatnot, but... Um, for me, the biggest thing was definitely the Lutron shade. And the reason I say that is because, you know, it's not insanely, you know, that revolutionary in the sense that it's, you know, it's another motorized shade. Um, it is a cell shade. I don't know if anyone else is actually making cellular motorized shades at this point. But the biggest thing to me is that not only is it a, you know, motorized shade that's 299 it's a wireless motorized shade that's 299 uh, Actually, I have a question for you, Matt, about those. As an yes. integrator, um, the two ninety nine version is actually the one they're going to be selling retail. That's a retail cost, and, and um, it's, a, it's an. Well, I was just Sorry, I was curious if, uh, as an integrator, you feel any concern about the fact that motorized wireless shades are now a product available to, like online or in Home Depot, to your customers. Um, 
I'm not be uh, I'm not really because there, it's not something that too many people are going to go and get themselves. Mm-hmm. It, it's the same as the fact that you can technically go buy, you know, a URC MX450 or something like that, which is one of the you know entry level remotes that we occasionally will stock. Um, you can go buy that anywhere. You can go buy a Harmony, and yeah, there's there's always going to be people who are going to try and do what we do themselves. And more power to them. It, you know, it is good for the industry because um, it just brings more awareness. But the difference will be is they may get those shades. And even if they go to the Home Depot and buy three of those shades and get them with the little, you know, basic IR remote, that's great. Because down the road when they look at it and, you know, they're looking at another shade or they got the brochure and they go, oh, I can integrate this with all my lighting. Well, I don't think I have the lighting to do that. But that would be really cool. And then they're going to call someone like me or, you know, any other ESC. Yeah, we do. ESC, everybody stay calm. It's okay. <laughs> things, are, nice. things are changing, but it's okay. So. All right. Anyway. So explain this. Uh, you guys keep using this, and I, I've already forgotten. What does ESC stand for again? Electronic, Electronic system contract. Systems Contractor. As opposed to? Uh, you know, Marble Contractor. No, yeah, no, no, sure. no. What did you call yourselves before? Custom, custom installers. installers. It custom used to be the CI market. The CI market. Custom now it's installation. Electronic custom systems. What was it again? ESC. <laughs> Electronic. Just call us. Uh, I, I still contractor. refer to myself as the VCR repairman. So there we know, go. Like, <laughs> you know what? Yay. I can't, I I can't remember <laughs> that. I got a little something. You know I do, Tim. Oh yes. Hang All on. right. Here we go. Here we go. Tim and Avi Week bring the savoir faire. We're busting out discussions, this and that, what, where. Dropping true insights, and that stuff's rare with Rave Pubs, Uncle Richie, and Matt Scott's hair. Nice. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> There's no way to follow that. Finally, we will end with probably one of our biggest interviews of the year, or one of our biggest you know, panels of the year. Uh, Sam Malik from, from Sanyo joined us and, and joined our panel, actually. He stuck, stuck around for the entire show to talk about the Panasonic Sanyo projector line and, and what that means uh, here in the near future and what that means for, for Sanyo. And the reason we, we even started with uh, my conversation with Sam this week, uh, again, Sam is the, is, the, is the vice president and general manager of, of Sanyo, the, the display division. Um, Gary Kay, who is, who is a, a pretty good friend of, of the show, um, had on his, his, his blog on the site this week on, on Ray Publications um, a scoop, according to Gary, um, where he said that Panasonic, who had purchased a, a majority stake and then ended up buying the, the whole thing of Sanyo uh, earlier this year, was shuttering Sanyo. Um, and uh, to, to word, use Gary's words, um, specifically, basically says um, that uh, uh, for the most part, the Sanyo folks will all need to find jobs. Um and so I, I reached out to Sam and said, hey, Sam, you know, here's this thing. Um, would you be willing to come on and talk about it? Um, would you be willing to you know, go, go back and forth and, and kind of explain exactly what's happening with Sanyo and, and with Panasonic? So that's, that's what we're going to do. And, then, and Sam's going to hang around and, and put his two cents on, on a couple of things. So, so Sam, what is kind of going on with, with Panasonic and Sanyo? Well, you know, Gary published his his scoop, and I think he had a, a momentary imagination that he was suddenly CNN or TMZ or something like that. And um, the, the scoop wasn't that much of a scoop, and there were some inaccuracies. I mean, he announced that, you know, 
Panasonic and Sanyo were coming together, and that's true. Panasonic did acquire Sanyo. Um, they, they bought half the company a year ago. They completed that last March. And so we've been in transition mode of, of planning, you know, how to bring these two companies together. And, and you know, just to clarify some things, Panasonic's paid $8 billion for Sanyo. Oh, uh, you know, so, I mean, it's, it's a chunk of cash. And the main reason they did that was for uh, hybrid car batteries and for solar panel business. So they now have a 97% market share of the with the combined two companies. But you know, after hybrid batteries and, and solar panels, then there's all these ancillary businesses after the fact. One of them being projectors and flat panel displays. That you know, our combined business is maybe uh, 200 or 250 million dollars when you combine Sanyo and Panasonic together. And we're kind of a little bit farther down on the list. But regardless, that was announced a year ago. Um, there's been a number of smaller announcements about how Panasonic plans to have a single brand strategy and bring that all together. And apparently, you know, Gary Kay woke up. And, and I like Gary Kay. He's well known in the industry. I'm very familiar with Rave. Uh, Sanya was a sponsor of, of some of his web page uh, findings and things like that. But it, it was kind of frustrating, his scoop that he put out there, because he's like, you know, Panasonic is going to totally eliminate the Sanyo brand by April. Well, we're transitioning together by April 2012, and there's a whole process that's involved with that. So it's it's not being totally eliminated. Actually, in the Middle East, Sanyo will continue to exist for at least another year while we wrap up some contracts and things like that. Um, it is true that we will go to a single brand strategy, which is Panasonic's brand name, uh, April 1st, 2012. And it looks like the majority of our people have the opportunity to go over to Panasonic or, or at least interview with Panasonic and integrate with their team. Um, there is a uh, – they have a certain go-to-market strategy. We have a go-to-market strategy. And, and then you combine the two together using Japanese math, 2 plus 2 equals 2.5. <laughs> So our goal is to at least have one, you know, try to get it to equal at least two overall, one plus one equaling two. Yeah. Um, you know, anything beyond that, I think, is, is upside and, and bonus. But, you know, we have two different strategies. We're trying to bring them all together. And, and certainly our people will be part of that combined team going forward. So, you know, while Gary's a good industry guy and well-respected, he, he was a little bit off and, and maybe a little negative in his scoop. But, uh, you know, like I said, he had grandeur of being TMZ one day. So, you know, I think he got a little bit ahead of himself. Well, a couple questions real quick. And, and, and if, you, if you don't feel comfortable answering that, that's fine. Um, a couple of things. You you talk about Sanyo is, is, and, and Panasonic is going to go under one roof in April. What is the difference? Or is it, is it simply contractual? Why in the Middle East it wouldn't? Um, why why the, the, the delay in, in putting the Middle sure, East? Sure. Yeah. Uh, good question, Tim. It's it's absolutely contractual. Um, there's a number of government bids that we had been awarded, and there's a certain quantity and timing for them to implement those projects. So we have to fulfill those contractual agreements. We can't just walk away from them without penalty. Okay, here here and you, <laughs> I I am my my main thing is is I'm I'm an end user and and I, I will say that to the end of the world. I'm not an integrator. Um, so I don't have the relationships that integrators have I don't, I don't have the headaches and I don't, I don't understand the ins and the outs why not keep both brands um again as an end user and my main thing is education and house of mark house of worship sanyo is, is beloved 
in both of those markets um, where, you know, Panasonic isn't necessarily isn't necessarily, you know, hated, but but it, it's almost like Panasonic is there's the perception that they are a another tier like, you know, a Christie or a Barco. And, and, and so there's a price associated with that. And when you're talking about house of worship and you talk about education, you know, money matters <laughs> when it comes to those two markets. You know, we have a finite, um, a finite budget and Sanyo has always been there for those two markets. So I'm, I guess my curiosity is, is why they would not throw away, but, but, and not dismiss because those are two very harsh words, but, but they wouldn't necessarily keep those, those factors in mind when they're saying, you know, Hey, let's bring these guys together. No, I think that that's an excellent question, Tim. We, um, I work on the committee to integrate these two businesses. So there's, there's myself and a few people on the Sanyo side and, and the same equal number on the Panasonic side. So for the last year, we've been working on these issues and, and certainly being loyal to Sanyo, we saw it that way as well is that there's a lot of legacy customers end user customers who, who love our product, who are very loyal to our product. They know it's extremely reliable and, and fits their needs and, and they'd like to continue buying it. Um, you know, that's great. But, you know, being that we're on the receiving end of this opportunity, that's the nicest way I can say it. Um, yeah. You know, they paid eight billion dollars and they can name it whatever they want. Oh, that you know? is true. I, and again, I, <laughs> I, I'm not going to I'm not going to, you know, give them back their eight million or eight billion so I can name it what I want. So. So, you know, if, if you look back in history and this is one of the points we used in our argument, you know, as we just tried to help decide what was the best thing going forward. If you look back to the in focus acquisition of Proxima 10, 12 years ago. Uh, Proxima was extremely dominant and, and did very well in the Proibi channel. And Focus had you know business plans to expand into the IT side and the retail side. And even if you talk to those former In Focus executives today, they probably said they would have did it differently and kept Proxima alive and, and operated both brands to maximize their impact to the market. And you know that's kind of a similar situation that we're in is that. Panasonic does very well. They have a very loyal uh, customer base for their three-chip DLP and, and a lot of their other products. And on the flip side, Sanyo has kind of a completely different uh, customer base that's very loyal and, and, and likes the products we build. And, and so we saw it as the best of both worlds to just operate independently. But, you know, they have a an overall corporate strategy from Japan on down and and that's to be a Panasonic, you know, corporation and everything is branded Panasonic to build, help build sales of other products. You know, they have Toughbook and security and, and flat panel displays and everything. So they, they want that brand to be associated at all levels. So that's, that's their decision. That's why they went with Panasonic only. But real good question, good point. And we felt the same way, but we, we lost the argument in the end. Well, and you, you know, one, real quickly, because this is kind of dovetailing into our next uh, article you and I talked earlier about the 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 distribution model I guess is the best way to get into this because Sanyo is a manufacturer direct to dealer model correct correct right it will that's so, go ahead yeah so we we sell through distribution but that's a a small part of our overall sales revenue we have 475 direct dealers so we, yeah, we market directly to the dealers who deliver to the end user, whereas Panasonic's model is 
is entirely through distribution. They said, look, we're a, we're a manufacturer. We build stuff and bring it to market. We're not good at logistics, so we're going to use distribution as our logistics or as they refer to it as pick, pack, and ship. Mm-hmm. And that's great, but you know those distributors, for the most part, are IT channel companies, and they really don't understand the display industry very well. Or, or deeply, you know, when they go into a higher education type environment and, and what they need and how it has to interface and how the professors want to use it and that type of thing. Whereas, because we have the direct model direct to dealers, we're directly linked into their sales. We, we join them on sales calls and we help drive those, those environments. So, you know, the model is, do you go to distribution? Is that a good way to use those guys as a warehouse for shipping and fulfilling orders? And, you know, what does it cost you in the end is the question. I have a question because I, I again I'm not an integrator, but I have a good friend of mine who is. He I, and he and I were, were talking about about your your and I's conversation about the distribution portion because I had questions for him. He made the comment that when you go to a distribution model, you are eliminating some of that not cachet, but but not and, and you are eliminating the relationship, but you're also elimin- eliminating some of that market uh, exclusivity. Uh, actually, he said, you know, now anybody can get it. Is is, is It was his exact statement. And I said, really? He said, yeah. Now, because when you go to a distribution model, the distributors don't know you. And, and so they'll sell the Panasonic or, or whatever it is that they're distributing to anybody. Is that is that valid? Is that an accurate argument? Yeah, it, it really is. If you look at one of the largest distributors is uh, Ingram Micro. They're an IT distributor, distributor been around a long time. Um, they carry 500,000 SKUs. Wow. So so I offer, my current lineup is 52 projectors. So I have 52 SKUs out of 500,000 SKUs, and, and they have probably 600 to 1,000 salespeople. So nobody there knows anything about Sanyo projectors. They don't know which lens goes with which product and what brightness you need, and at what point do you mount it, and the difference between XGA and WXGA. You know, you're not getting any of that where we feel that a pro AV dealer, somebody we have a direct relationship with, we train them on a regular basis. They, they, the ones that they choose their product line, whatever brand it may be, whether it's, it's Sanyo, Panasonic, NEC, Mitsu, whatever. And then they become very loyal to that brand. We have that connection. They're an extension of, of our sales force and of our factory. They're, they're hooked up directly. When you go through distribution, Unless they're a specialty distributor, uh, there's a couple of them out there like uh, Inter- International Audiovisual, uh, IAVI down mm-hmm. in Florida, uh, Almo, uh, Almo, ALMO in uh, Pennsylvania. Those are specifically pro AV distributors, and all they do is display gear and the related equipment. So the, the, the micro tiles and the audio systems and, and the switchers, you know, Extron or AMX or Crestron, they do all of that. And so they're very specifically knowledgeable to our industry. And they can recommend the right products. They don't carry 500,000 SKUs. They might carry 1,000 SKUs, which is you know considerably less. And they're experts in the products that they sell. So they, but when, they know the SKUs, though. They know the SKUs. I mean, you can go in and question them, and they know them. Almost any brand, even if it's not one they represent, they know what it offers, what it does, You know the pluses and minuses, et cetera. Whereas if you go to an Ingram Micro Tech Data, good luck yeah. you know, to, to find somebody. Can I ask a follow-up question to this, though, because this, this kind of brings up a conversation, uh, one of the podcasts that we had uh, maybe a month or two ago, in that you know one of the issues, and again, I'm coming from the primarily the residential side, um, Tim and, and, and Matt, 
um, kind of deal with the higher end, higher ed, and and Matt kind of straddles both lines. But one of the conversations that we've been having is the eroding profit margins, uh, especially with video. And when you went from dealer direct, you have one profit center that you're dealing with. By going to you know introducing that distribution model at that point, even though they're specialists and they can help you and work your way through, aren't you at that point eliminating the need for a dealer to want to stay with that line at that point? Because they're going, well, great, you you just did this deal that's great for you, but really what's happened is I just lost money right now. You know, I'm sure your product's great, but I, I've now just eliminated even more of my profitability. How how is that going to be addressed? You're you're absolutely correct because you know when you go through a distributor, the distributor is expecting to make you know, just in round numbers, anywhere between five and 10% profit margin for distributing that product. So that's additional markup that has to come from somewhere. A lot of times it comes out of the dealer's margin and the dealer, you know, the one that interfaces with the end user needs to make a certain level of profit to be able to put a truck on the street, somebody to go out and install it, you know, a salesman to sell it, to get the right product to them, to put it in stock and, and pay for the inventory. So, there were some profit erosions, and, and Tim, to go back to your comment earlier, um, when it's available in distribution and anybody can buy it, um, that also kind of erodes the the loyalty for certain people to recommend or sell those products because, you know, once somebody gets a quote, let's say they're going to do a home theater and it's five thousand dollars to put a, a nice home theater in their house, you know, with with sound system, or and they can go a lot more than that, of course, but. First thing people do is take that quote and go out and shop it on the internet and see how cheap they can buy it. Yeah. They start to pick it apart. And then at that point, you know, where a dealer really should be earning five hundred or a thousand dollars to install something, they might be looking at making a hundred and fifty bucks and they can't stay in business with no margin. No. You know. Uh, so it's these are a lot of the factors of distribution. Um, Panasonic has an authorized dealer model that they implement, so not everybody can buy their product at distribution. You have to be a pre-authorized dealer in order to be able to buy the product. And a lot of manufacturers, I think, are implementing that type of policy to kind of control the flow and, and, and try and maintain some pricing in the marketplace. That does at least help curb some of those concerns that some of the integrators have. So, Right. If I could cut in just for one sec. Um, you know, what my company does a lot of times is, you know, we deal a lot with distribution. Distribution's been very good for us. Um, I do understand, you know, both aspects of it, and we do have some companies that we're direct with. But I guess my question to you, Sam, is if distribution is so bad, and again, I use that very lightly, I still I don't completely understand in the argument of, you know, a customer, an end user, price, you know, shopping everything, they're going to do that anyways, whether they're buying a product that's distribution or direct, because the products are out there. Um, you know, in projectors, a lot of times, even if we spec something that is harder to attain, a lot of customers, or end users, I should say, are going to go to something like, you know, projector, projection pros and find a comparable model whether it's you know in our eyes comparable or not and still come back with that same point yeah you know the end users aren't usually aware of you know distribution and whether products distributed or not you right know, so they're they're blind to that but there's a lot of 
um, not good quality companies, let's call it that way, that they take, they take the electronic feed off of the distributors, let's say an Ingram or a Tech Data, their computers automatically get the feed on the SKUs they've checked off, they mark it up 2%, and then it automatically posts it to their web page. They don't stock it. Many times they don't sell it. If you order that, you know, if you order product ABC, they'll take your order and your credit card and then a month later tell you it's not available and try and ship you a CD&E instead that they do make some work right. on. So there's a lot of low-level guys doing bait-and-switch type stuff. Then there's a lot of legitimate dealers that, you know, integrators or dealers that, you know, do sell the product. They try and make a, a reasonable margin. And that's not to gouge the end users, but to make a profit that it takes to support, install it, and, and then be there for the customer after the fact a year later, you know. And most most consumers don't realize, you know, what it takes to support a, a professional installation, you know, after the fact that you've got to have some profit back there so that you're around to do that a year later. Right. Um, they just they just look at your quote, includes installation, they pick the biggest item on the quote and then go out and shop it on the internet and go, Oh, I can I can get that on eBay or Amazon for two hundred dollars <laughs> less, you know. Yeah. It, it's and there, that's a no support product as long as you know what you're doing you can install it yourself great have at it and i wish you the best of luck but you know if you want it to be supported and somebody to answer your call if you got a problem you better buy it from a reputable dealer you know it doesn't matter the fact that panasonic is spelled with a k at the end you know <laughs> just like sony just like sony i, I swear it's, it's a rolex you know sell you two two for 100 so, all right well, thank you much for listening. Uh, have a safe and happy holiday season from my family, from the AV Nation family, and, and from myself personally, Tim Albright. Thank you so much for helping to make AV Nation what it is. Please have a Merry Christmas and, and a safe and happy new year. 